Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Kathy Grace and Dr. Kenya Wolf with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hello, everybody. We're so glad to be back with you. I'm Dr. Kathy Grace, and with me is Dr. Kenya Wolf and Dr. Rosemary Allen. This is our Ed's Up podcast, and we are so happy that Dr. Allen is going to talk with us today about topics that we have found to be more and more in the news. And I think she has a very good perspective and one that we all need to hear, whether we're educators, parents, or both. And so uh, we're so glad again. And thank you, Dr. Allen, for being with us today. I think Dr. Wolf's got the first question for you. I sure do. So, Dr. Allen, can you share with us what got you interested in working with families and young children? You know, I um, I have in my entire life wanted to be a teacher. I was one of those children who would gather up all the neighborhood children and play school. Unfortunately, I had a very negative experience in school. As much as I loved school, I found that I was in trouble all the time. From the day I stepped foot on the school campus, I was consistently suspended and in trouble. I was suspended numerous times as a child and actually expelled from three schools. In the, in the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing wrong because the rules at school were not consistent with the rules at home. And I was, I just didn't understand. Of course, as time went on, I became more resentful and a little rebellious, deciding probably in middle school and research bears this out that in middle school, I wasn't going to be treated that way anymore and became rebellious. But one of the reasons I decided to dedicate my life to children and families is because I never wanted a child to experience what I experienced. That they, even though I got in trouble, I still loved school. (laughs) I still went and I still hoped for the best, but I wanted to become a teacher that would, um, be fair and just, that students would love and want to learn from and hopefully even emulate. Well, I've had the benefit of listening to some of your lectures, and I know, as you mentioned, that you had a hard time in school. And I think if you could just give a couple of examples that you did in one of the presentations I heard around what was really normal development but had not been appreciated by the teachers in the school. And that was one of the things that you recalled that was very hurtful to you and and how um, they decided to label you or your behaviors along the lines of really what was developmentally appropriate for a child at that age. Dr. Grace, it's so important that as we're working with children, we remember what typical development looks like. And we really understand the natural need for children to be curious, to explore, to experiment, to try things out, to fail, to succeed. And that just didn't happen for me. For instance, um, I had always heard that China was on the other side of the earth. And I remember digging in the playground, digging and digging so that we could get to China. And they labeled me destructive for that. And I was a very curious, curious child, and I was very curious about the baby dolls and how their eyes moved. 
And I remember taking the head off the baby doll so I could look at the mechanism for the eyes that controlled the eyes. And with that, I got really curious. I removed the head, looking at the mechanism for the eyes. How did their arms fit? How did they move? Did that with a few dolls. And shockingly, I was labeled demonic, that I had demonic-like tendencies. And it was the adult projecting their own perceptions onto me as a child at five years old, at six years old. Something like um, sneaking in the boys' bathroom because I have six sisters and a brother. And I heard that they got to urinate standing up. It's like, how curious is that? How does that work? And I snuck in to see. And um, then they said I was sexually perverted. By this time, they, they mandated that I go to therapy. I had to go to counseling before I could return to school. And all of these things are just natural curiosity for children. And if we just imagine shifting that perspective to be able to say, this little girl is really curious. It reminds me of a time when my niece who lives in Birmingham, Alabama, she was, we were walking down the street and a snake, she picked up a snake and it was a garden snake. And my sister popped her hand, made her drop the snake. And my niece was so upset, she ran to me and I hugged her as she cried. But in that moment, she may have killed the wonderful scientific scientist, that curiosity in that child. The baby had no idea what she did wrong. She saw a snake and she was so curious. Look, mom, a snake. So we have to go back to our developmental knowledge, our knowledge of how children grow, learn, and develop, and understand that the behavior they exist that may be pushing our buttons are very typical for them, and not only typical, but necessary for them to grow. Well, as you know, because you certainly have studied this, school suspensions of young children are at an all-time high. And uh, if you could maybe share with us some of your thoughts on why this is occurring, and I even read the other day that an infant had been expelled. And I just can't imagine the situation and what that was supposed to resolve. But the teachers in public schools and in child care settings are, are uh, we're seeing more of this. So could you probably shed, I know you could, shed some insight in this practice and why it's not necessarily the best for the children or for their future is is what you just mentioned, being students of learning. And and it's really unfortunate that we are suspending children at this these astronomical rates, as you said, Dr. Grace, and it's especially painful to watch because we get children at the most important periods of their lives when brain development is just astronomical, that their brains are developing, about 90% of brain development happens in early education. I also want to say that we have some of the best and greatest teachers ever. People enter our field because they really want to positively impact children and their families. So it's important that we note that these are not bad, terrible, horrible people. They are great teachers, but they need the skills the tools, and the supports to address challenging behaviors. We're putting more on them than ever. 
I was a preschool teacher. I taught three-year-olds for five years. I didn't have to do half the things that teachers have to do now with observations and, and, um, and, and, and addressing children with special needs in the classroom with high teacher ratios, high turnover, you know, all the things they're facing. So what we have to understand that there are four factors that lead teachers to want to suspend or expel children. First is the perception of the child's behavior. The perception that this child's behavior is more than I can handle. The second factor is the the hopelessness that the behavior will never change. That this child's behavior is too much and they're going to be this way for the entire year and there's no changing this child's behavior. And then the, the third factor is that if the child hurts himself, herself, or someone else, I'm going to be held accountable. So there's a fear of a child who throws toys. You know, a block can hurt. <laughs> a block can split a head open. And if a child is a thrower, there's a fear that if this child hurts another child, I'm going to be held accountable. And in many states, they are held accountable. And then the fourth factor is that the child disrupts my classroom so much that I'm ineffective as a teacher. So those are some of the factors that Dr. Walter Gilliam found in 2016, why teachers suspend. You brought up a very interesting fact that Infants are suspended and expelled from their childcare programs. And anecdotally, we found that the reasons for this are excessive crying and biting. Oh my gosh, this is what babies are supposed to do. This is their job. So we're kicking babies out for crying too much and for biting. And again, it goes back to those factors. The baby's behavior is disrupted. I don't know if you've ever dealt with a child who's crying excessively, but it can feel like a lot. So teachers, again, getting back to my first point, they need the skills, the tools, and the supports. I'll tell you a story. I had a child who was about seven months of age when I was running the lab school at the local community college. This baby cried incessantly. Not just, but that hard cry, the hiccupy cry. And it appeared it was all day. And it was a lot for the teachers. And I rotated the teachers out. That's the support. Then we talked about what we could do. We cradled, we, 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 we tried to get in rhythm, you know, the indigenous rhythm of the child. We tried everything. And one day I was in there holding the child and trying to to get into that natural rhythm. And I noticed the other babies. One was just turning like their head. And while I was giving teachers time to get out of the classroom for relief, those babies were in there with this crier all day. So then we began to take the baby for walks and we did a lot. One day I was walking down the hallway And the teacher was standing outside of the classroom. And I said, what are you doing? She said, I can't stand to look at him. I understand how people commit child abuse. That was so powerful. I said, it's okay. 
take a walk. I'll go in. And I went in. She took a walk for two hours. I thought I was going to lose my mind. But I was there. Again, the support. When she came back, she said, do I still have a job? I said, of course you do. We have to realize that every amazing, great teacher can have a horrible moment. And I said, "Go if you're if you are capable, come on in." And she goes, "I'm fine now. I'm good." And at the end of the day, we talked it through. She said, "Am I going to be reprimanded?" I said, "The only thing I need from you is to call me next time. Call me and say you need to leave. Don't leave children unsupervised." We did not kick the baby out. It turned out the child had an allergic reaction to the formula. So the baby was in pain all day. But it took us about six weeks to find out. But I can imagine that a teacher without that support could say we need to get rid of the child. And had we done that, because the mother even thought about putting the child in a family child care home, which is smaller and a lot more attention, but that provider would not have had the support that we had at the center. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that we have to talk about. So excessive crying, let's find out why. Let's work with the family. Let's refer to specialists because we did refer the child to a specialist. And that's how we address that. And that we find out with the excessive biting We all know children are going to bite, especially when they're nonverbal. So what causes us to kick a child out for biting? And most of the time, it's the fear of other parents. It's the fear of the bitten child. You know, have you ever had a biter and you have to tell the parent, I'm so sorry, but your child was bitten today. And after a while, even though we know better than to talk about who did the biting, if parents figure it out. They talk to each other. Now, all of a sudden, this child is a problem. And rather than face the wrath of parents, it's more expedient to remove the child from the facility. So that's what we're seeing as well. Well, you've made a couple of points around training and preparation of teachers in early childhood, particularly those very young children. As you know, we're having problems still in our centers across the country as far as recovering from the pandemic and the staffing situations. I know that one of the things that I'm taking away from what you've just said is that staff orientation is critical when people come in new and that even if they've had previous experience or education, they may not have had the opportunity to be with that particular age of child. Mm -hmm. And so that we can't take anything for granted those of us that would be responsible for the teachers would need to be respectful and remember that they need the support, as you said, as far as even the training pieces mm-hmm. of this uh, before they're just put in a classroom without any background mm-hmm. assistance. Absolutely. When you think about our teacher education programs, for instance, child development is one of the first courses they take. Definitely probably the top three. And then if they're getting a four-year degree, by the time they graduate, child development courses were almost four years past. So when we get new staff, I think one of the things that we need to talk about, as you said, Dr. Grace, is what a two-year-old looks like. You know, when you think about it, what a three-year-old looks like, because they learned about that so long ago, it can be long forgotten. You know, I remember when I graduated, I thought I was going to change the world. 
And then I realized I could not control a group of 23-year-olds to save my life. (laughs) It was just tough. So when we tell them two-year-olds are going to do exactly what they want, they're still very egotistical. Their favorite words are no, stop, don't. They're going to run away from you. They have the, the, the attention span of a fly. And they're going to flitter from one thing to the next. And you think you're going to teach, but you're going to do a lot more chasing than teaching, you know, and those things. And then when we talk about a three-year-old, because we we prepare families and teachers for twos, but we don't prepare them for threes. And threes are twos on steroids. They have more words. And now they have these friendships and they have the ability to collude. I was observing a classroom and there were three little boys, three-year-olds, during this class observation, who were had snuck away from circle time, and they're under the water table trying to take out the plug. Can you imagine what would have happened to the observation had they been successful? And you know, as an observer, I know I don't interfere, but I just couldn't let it happen. So I eased over and I said, I don't think your teacher wants you to do that. Oh my goodness, you're not the boss of us. We don't have to listen to her. These are threes, and this is what they do. Fours will question and challenge you all day, every day, all day long. And fives just know everything. And when we can help a teacher understand that these are the children you will be dealing with and some of the behaviors that you can expect, along with the tools to help children to control their impulses. You know, we we play these games, but we don't always tell teachers why. For instance, Simon Says or Duck, Duck, Goose or Red Light, Green Light or Freeze. Those are all games that develop impulse control. And when teachers know that, that children are impulsive and we're teaching them to self-regulate, then it's kind of, again, it shifts our perception of who they are. You know, when you know that a three-year-old will... You, 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 you get, gather them to go inside and you count them and you have the 20 and you get inside and you only have 19. That three-year-old's hiding under the slide, you know, and rather than punishing that you bring them in and it's a perfect opportunity to talk about the rules. You know what else we don't do for children? We do not intentionally teach the expectations and the behaviors that we want them to exhibit. How many times have we heard teachers say, well, they know better. They know better. He knows better than the hide under the slide. But do we teach them better? Do we teach them how to share? And do we teach them how to make friends? And do we teach them even how to initiate play? I tell you, if I came to Mississippi and I wanted to have lunch with you, Dr. Grace, and with you, Dr. Wolf, I am shy, believe it or not. I'm so inherently shy that it would take everything in me just to call and say, hey, I'm in town. Can we have lunch? I don't know if I'm capable of doing that. I can tell you no one intentionally taught me how to initiate friendships. But what if we did that early on? Because some children, when they want to initiate play or join a group, and they don't know how, they'll come over and tear down the block structure. That's how they get the attention. You know, they'll come over and take their little car and drive it all over the birthday cake that some child made because they want to be invited to the party. 
So these are the skills that we can give teachers so that they can also teach children those skills. That's wonderful. I love that you mentioned that those missing skills. And really, I often think that we play detective and we're looking for those root causes because behavior really is just communication. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that Mm -hmm. um, I love that story about the plug because they were being little scientists trying to figure out how to get the water out. So how do we help teachers shift from seeing misbehavior as defiance or trouble, you know, troublemaking to, you know, looking at things as either communication or a missing skill. So what we really have to do is help teachers understand who they are and what they bring with them into the classrooms. One of the first assignments I have for my social emotional competence class is an assignment where they have to reflect on how they were raised because how we were raised greatly influences how we teach. So how were you raised? What are some of the things that you got in trouble for? What was deemed bad behavior? How did your, how did your family respond to that behavior? And then to reflect on because of the way you were raised, what expectations do you now have of children? And that's always very eye-opening because some people were raised in a household where children were to be seen and not heard, where you didn't question the adult, where you obeyed blindly no matter what. Um, some people were raised in households. I was raised in a Christian household where, where God has put a period, you don't put a question mark. So you don't question things. You do it because I said do it. And once they know who they are, then we can take their own cultural and social lens and location and talk about the alignment with what we know to be good, sound child development practices. And I tell people all the time that how you were raised is so near and dear to you but you have to use the science of how children develop in your classrooms. You don't use, well, it worked for me. You know, my grandmother believed in browning flour and using it on a baby's bottom for a diaper rash. You can't take brown flour into your early childhood programs and put it on a baby for diaper rash. She also believed in putting garlic around your neck for congestion. I can't string garlic on children's necks because my parents did it. So why do we believe that we can respond to behavior because that's the way our parents did it or this is what I think is best? I go to the professional when I need medicine. And if a doctor walked out with a string of garlic, I would get rid of that doctor. Parents bring their children to us because we're the professionals and we just don't have a right to implement our home remedies, whether it's our response to behavior, the way that children should grow up, we don't have a right to implement that in our classrooms. So, so, so that's another thing that we have to think about. Know yourself, reflect on how you were raised, and then be aware of your hot buttons. Because your hot buttons are usually based on those cultural and social expectations. 
I was raised in a family where children were to be seen and not heard. Simple as that. If I if I was in a room with grown-ups, you don't interrupt. You kind of made yourself small. You didn't talk unless a grown-up asked you a question. And you definitely never, ever, ever corrected an adult. Ever. Oh, gosh, I just had PTSD <laughs> correcting my family. And just some of my cultural norms. When you walk in a room, you speak. You always speak to adults. Another cultural norm is when an adult calls you, you come. If my dad called me, Rose, my response is coming. And I remember Connor. I called Connor. I said, Connor. And he said, what? I'm like, oh my God. No, he didn't. Did he just say what to me? A grown up? And I was so put off by that because that was my hot button. I said, Connor. He goes, what? I'm like, no, he didn't say it again. I marched over to Connor with my hands on my hips, got into his little face. And I said, Connor. And he looked at me with the most innocent, amazing look. He goes, what, teacher? You keep calling me. What do you want? Our expectations were misaligned. When I caught him, I expected him to come. When he heard his name being called, he expected me to tell him what I wanted. Do you see how that plays out every day in a classroom? Our cultural and our social expectations are misaligned. So teachers have to examine themselves, know the child, know the cultural expectations of the family, intentionally teach the agreed upon rules of the classroom and of the school, and implement them consistently, but only after giving children a lot of time to practice. You know, giving specific praise, not good job, well done. That tells them nothing. But I saw I saw you help Adrian putting the paints away. That was amazing. Very specific. So the children know what they're being praised for, and then they'll want to continue to implement that behavior. I have to ask one question because we spent so much time, and thank goodness we have, on teachers in classrooms. But in my surveying of teachers uh, in the last year, some of them are really seriously considering retiring early because of their dismay with parents that they have not experienced the uh, behaviors, I guess you could say, of parents in some of the way they have in the last year or so. Now, this, of course, could relate to job stress and, and other economic factors. But if you were going to advise parents who might be listening to this, uh, in terms of some of the things that they could do very early on in a child's life, you know, let's say two, uh, so that there could there could be some acknowledgement that they are so critical, as you've just mentioned, in terms of setting the stage for children's later in life behaviors and what it is to be part of a group or even in the workplace, how you would perform. The same way we talked about teachers coming into the field because they want to make a difference. We have to have that same positive perspective of families that they're doing the very best they can under circumstances that we've not ever seen in the history of this country or even in our lives that we've not witnessed. And when it comes to parents preparing their children for the world, we have to understand that everything we do, we're modeling for our children. That teachers 
and families must partner together to ensure the best outcomes for children. That families have to respect the teachers and what they're doing and how they're doing it the same way that teachers must respect the families. But we don't take the time usually to really sit down and talk to families as they enter our programs to find out what their hopes, dreams, and expectations are for their children. And conversely, the families don't take the time to find out either. They find childcare or preschool programs that are close to home, available, and affordable. But do we take the time to say that our philosophy at this school is play-based? These are some of the things that you can expect that will occur during any given week at our facility. Your child's going to get dirty. They're going to come home full of paint and sand. We teach them that they have agency and they use their voices. So they may say to you, mommy, I don't like it when you talk to me like that. Your child's going to be hit. Your child may get bitten because they're learning socialization and how to get along and impulse control. They may even learn some words that none of us approve of. But these are the things that happen in a group setting with this age group. Tell me how you feel about some of these things that we talked about. And if the family says, well, I pay too much for my child's clothes and I don't want them dirty, then you talk about what we can do. My child's family child care provider, she had little jumpers. I was concerned because my child came home clean every day. And I know that this child is a mud pie sand person she was when she was younger. And every time I picked her up, her clothes were clean. So I went early because is she making them watch TV all day? You know, it was concerning, but she had little jumpers that she put on them. And when I saw my baby, she was full of mud and paint and all of this on the jumpers. But that was her answer to keeping children clean. So when you can talk about the expectations on both ends, what parents expect, the facility expects, then I think it sets the stage. The other thing that I want parents to know is that children watch how you treat and speak to people. And if you're speaking and treating the teacher in a way that makes her appear subordinate, or incompetent, the child will view the teacher the same way. And the same behaviors that the family is exhibiting will be the behaviors of the child, and then the problem is compounded. I just want to say this too while I'm thinking about it. I'm sure this is happening happening all over the country, but in the retail areas near my home, there's not enough workers, the same way there's not enough workers in our early childhood programs. And we're always talking about treating people well. I am a TJ Maxx shopper. <laughs> they closed early because they didn't have enough people. And I'm talking to my neighbors and my friends, please treat them nicely because for the first time we have long lines. We never had lines here. And the lines are so long. Please be kind because we don't want the workers that are there to quit. Be kind to our teachers. They are going through enough. Teachers be kind to parents. When we talk about trauma, we have all been traumatized through this pandemic. People are just beginning to get out. Have you all noticed? They're driving crazier than ever. People are speeding like crazy. People have very short fuses. They have short tempers. If we're not careful, 
this new generation that we're shaping right now will become what we're seeing. And we don't want that. So we have to work together. You're giving us some very good, solid, I would say, wisdom from what you're saying to us. I would just ask you if you have anything you would like to share with our audience uh, because you've been so gracious in giving us so much of your time. You know, one of the things I'd like to talk about a little bit that we don't like to talk about is the bias that we all carry with us everywhere. And bias is inherent. We all have it. We didn't ask for it. We don't want it, but it shapes everything we do. And if I can go back to having teachers really reflect on who they are. That's where our bias lives. If I didn't understand that Connor was expecting me to tell him what I wanted, my bias could have just jumped right in and it did. How dare this child say what to me? And because of the way that I was brought up, I could think he was a disrespectful kid, you know? And then the media shapes our images of who's bad, who's not, who's dispensable, who misbehaves. So I really want us teachers and families and communities to really try very hard to be aware of the biases that we carry with us. What is our definition of a good student? Is it that child who sits up nicely, crisscross applesauce and raises their hand all the time? What about children who are active and need to move? Are they the bad kids? What about the children who constantly question? Why? What? How come? Why can't I go outside now? How do we view them based on how we were raised that's also influenced by biases? Who makes us uncomfortable and who doesn't? What families push our buttons? You know, are we so preoccupied with some of our low-income families and how they wear new shoes and designer clothes and drive great cars that we think they're awful? because they can't pay their parent fee. What biases are popping up for us? So just examining our biases, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, and then extending grace during this period where we're really learning how to live together again. We've been isolated for so long that we've forgotten how to live together and get along. I think that's a wonderful way to conclude our interview. That's back to communication and behavior. So we've tied it all together. Uh, so again, we thank you for your time and we encourage everybody to learn more about you and your work. You have YouTube videos. I was able to find you easily there. And just to remind folks that we are in times, as you mentioned, that are very unusual. We still are. Uh, patience can go a long way. Dr. Allen, thank you again so much for being with us. And we will be back soon with another Ed's Up. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. If you have an early education topic you'd like to discuss, let us know about it at edsup at olemiss.edu. The Ed's Up podcast is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.